You may be seated. Will you pray with me? O oh God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, be holy and pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. One day last week, after I'd gotten home from work, I changed into my comfy clothes and put my feet up for a bit, I turned on the TV and began flipping channels. It wasn't long before the premise of this prank show caught my attention for the next 15 minutes. The show, if I remember correctly, was called Babe or Bail. It's a show completely devoted to couples pranking one another in some way or shape or form to see if when the stakes are at their highest, if their relationship is at the top of their priorities list. On the particular episode that I was watching, four couples had signed up for a kayaking excursion, and the instructors encouraged them for the sake of their safety to keep their eyes peeled for any sort of wildlife, specifically crocodiles. And wouldn't you know, moments, mere moments after they had begun kayaking around in the water, the head of a massive crocodile breaks the surface of the water, sending all of them into an absolute panic. Now, of the eight people kayaking, four of them are in on this plot and know that this terrifying crocodile circling around them is really just a diver swimming around with a crocodile head on its back. But the other unfortunate four are unaware that this is fake and unaware that their significant others are waiting to see if their responses will be to save their partners or to save themselves. One woman was quite panicked, but she saw that her boyfriend was being sort of cornered by this beast, and so she paddled over to him as fast as she could to provide emotional support and a second pair of eyes and a second oar, if needed, for protection. Another man paddled as quickly as he could to his frightened girlfriend to protect her and even jumped in the water in his haste to save her life. But the other two did not fare so well. One girl stayed right where she was, focused only on where the crocodile was in relation to her, and didn't really feel very concerned about how close this being and this creature was or wasn't to her significant other. And another man really took the cake with his response. The literal moment that this crocodile head breached the surface. He paddled away to the pier as fast as he could and just yelled to his wife as he floated away, I'm sorry, honey, I can't swim. <laughs> and that was it. When we think about this story and ask the question, well, what would I do in this situation? I'm, I'm sure we all like to think that we would find ourselves among the brave and selfless few. I know I certainly hope that's where I would land. But the truth is, I'm quite a scaredy cat. And when faced with some of my greatest fears, more often than not, I prioritize self-preservation over anything else. Not to say that self-preservation is bad or sinful. I mean, the ingrained value of protecting the self is often what keeps us from doing things that could endanger us or things that could harm us in any way. But unfortunately, the need to preserve our lives and ourselves can shift into selfishness. 
And the need to preserve ourselves can also get in the way of serving God fully, authentically, and wholeheartedly. We see this play out in a variety of ways in our text for this morning. Our main man, David, is the king of all Israel. The first verse of our text sets the story in the spring of the year, informing us that during the spring of the year, even the high kings join their men in battle. And yet David didn't go. Instead, he sent Joab in his place. We aren't told why David doesn't go into battle, and I guess it's not a huge deal that he didn't go. It could have been something as simple as a day off. Everyone deserves a day off, right? And, and he's enjoying his day off, and so as he's doing this, he takes a stroll on the roof. He lays eyes on Bathsheba, a beautiful woman bathing in the town below him. Struck by her beauty, David sends people to inquire about who this beautiful woman is, what family she came from, and if she's off the market, so to speak. It's likely that David wanted to include her in his concubine, his group of wives. And if Bathsheba had been unmarried, she would have been eligible. But David's informants return to tell him that she comes from a distinguished family, the daughter of Eliam, and that she's married to Uriah the Hittite a man that David later names as one of his top 30 soldiers. With this information, we would hope that David, the divinely appointed king, would leave her be, that this honor and dignity for which he is so well known would kick in and compel him to turn the other way and take a stroll somewhere else. Yet that is not the case. Instead, we see that David is less concerned with acting in honor and dignity, and he is more concerned about the fact that Bathsheba doesn't belong to him. There's no doubt that David is a man of wealth, privilege, and power. He is the king, after all, divinely appointed by the Almighty God, the man appointed with the duty of transporting the sacred ark of the covenant, the man frequently described in some circles as the one after God's own heart. And yet, all that wealth, all that divine honor, all those things that he accomplished, that placed upon him an image of strength, wisdom, power, and dignity, all those things had gone to his head. All those things had made him more concerned with serving himself rather than serving the God who appointed him. From the moment this passage begins, we see that David acts in such a way that shows us that he believes he's above the rules. He should have gone to battle, but he didn't want to, so he didn't. He should have left Bathsheba alone, but he didn't want to, so he didn't. David's arrogance continues to play out through the following verses describing his adultery. The very verbiage in the text communicates that David believes he's in control and he can do whatever he pleases. The verbs are active ones, like he sent messengers to get Bathsheba. And when she came to him, he lay with her. There's no indication for us that Bathsheba has any agency, any 
other option than to go along with this adultery. David has legitimately gone from a divinely appointed king to the kind of king that the prophet Samuel warns Israel about, a king who takes for himself at the expense of the people. He's gone far beyond self-preservation at this point. He's, he's trapped in the tangled weeds of selfishness. Up to this point, there haven't been any serious consequences for David. He's been in control and able to do as he pleased, all under the cover of secrecy. That is, until the plot thickens and Bathsheba approaches him, telling him that their adulterous encounter has led to her pregnancy. In this moment, control has been completely stripped from David. His sin is indeed before him. And it's up to him to find a way to cover it all up for the sake of defending and preserving his honor. Heaven forbid, authenticity and vulnerability do not seem to be viable options for David. Instead, secrecy, deceit, and even murder seem to be the only ways he sees fit to deal with his wrongdoing. Now, before we continue walking through this story, I want us to take a moment and really set the story with all its complexities, all its emotions and actions into our own minds and hearts in a way that allows us to understand how David must be feeling. We, as readers of scripture, have the luxury of reading this passage with the knowledge of what happens next in our minds. We're just looking down at a small piece of David's life's puzzle, and we can simply look ahead to see how it all turned out. We can look ahead a few chapters and see that the prophet Nathan confronts David about his sinful actions. We can see that David eventually acknowledges his sin and pens the words of Psalm 51, the psalm that we pray and proclaim at the start of every Lenten season where we beg God to create in us clean hearts, to have mercy on us according to God's steadfast love, to blot out our transgressions and cleanse us from our sin. Yes, we can look ahead to those moments of redemption, when we find ourselves uncomfortable with what David has done. But friends, for David, that moment is not now. That moment of redemption and resolution is not where David is. Instead, David is afraid. He is in a bind. He's overwhelmed with all the expectations weighing on him. He's overloaded with ways to make it right. And I stress this because as I sat with this text, I found myself so tempted to look ahead for the redemption of David. I wanted so badly to look forward to what God was going to do with all this mess. But the reality of this text is that David had made some horrible mistakes. But they stain his honor as king, and David is now faced with his own vulnerability and honor, that it's a little bit ruined. He had gotten Bathsheba pregnant. He can either face this truth with vulnerability, or he can continue to preserve himself and attempt to regain control. We know which route David chooses for himself. Rather than come clean about his adultery and selfishness, David 
continues scheming to find a way to cover up for his mistakes. He summons Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and tries to entice him with a night away from the battlefield to go home, enjoy a home-cooked meal, have a romantic night with his wife, so that he and everyone else in the kingdom would believe that the baby Bathsheba now carries is, in fact, her husband's. But unfortunately for David, Uriah is a man of integrity. He doesn't feel right taking advantage of such luxuries while his men remain away from their wives and families. But David does not give up so quickly. He thinks that surely Uriah will give in to a night of luxury if he gets him drunk enough. But alas, Uriah's integrity and refusal to lay with his wife is yet another element that David can't control. Again, we hope that David would take this opportunity to come clean and be vulnerable and truthful and authentic about his transgressions, but no. No, it seems that finding a roundabout way to murder Uriah is a better option for saving David's skin. So David commands Joab to do his dirty work. Once again, he orders Joab to command Uriah to the front lines of the most violent battle so that he will undoubtedly die in combat. And when he does, many other men, not just Uriah, end up dead. Another unexpected result that is out of David's control. You know, vulnerability is a thing that we talk about a lot in church, but it's much easier to talk about the importance of vulnerability. And it's much, much harder to practice it among one another and out in the world. For many of the same reasons as David, we truly fear being vulnerable with one another. We fear that being vulnerable will make us look weak or cowardly We fear the criticism that comes from opening ourselves up to others and showing them our scars and our mistakes. We fear the ways that we criticize ourselves by admitting that we cannot do things, that we are imperfect and broken. And yet we are followers of the triune God who creates something out of nothing, who shines light in the darkness, who feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, who calls the stuttering Moses, the adulterous David, and the murderous Saul to do the very work of God. Vulnerability is not easy. It is not pretty. It is not perfect. It often does not make us look good, but it is authentic. It is how God calls us to be before one another. It's how God calls us to serve others. And most importantly, it changes us. Though I encourage us not to jump too far ahead in 2 Samuel too soon, it is in the following chapter of 2 Samuel where Nathan confronts David about his transgressions. And it's in this confrontation where David finally embraces his vulnerability. The fact that he had done wrong by so many people. The fact that he was more selfish than he wanted to admit. 
to others and especially to himself, that he cared more about his appearance before others than he cared about the people around him. And it's in this embrace of his flaws, his failings, his shortcomings, his own state of vulnerability where he's transformed. It's in this place where he finds the strength and the courage to pray for a clean heart and a transformed life. It is because David embraces vulnerability that he's able to set aside the need to preserve himself and put serving God and God's people in its place. We may find ourselves wondering how we put this into practice, what it actually looks like for us to embrace vulnerability. And I think it could look like a lot of different things to a lot of us here. Where I'm from in Alabama, vulnerability is responding to the question, how are you doing? with, well, you know, I'm really going through a rough time right now. Instead of just smiling and saying, oh, I'm fine, honey, how are you? Because that's basically what everyone does at church on Sunday. Maybe something this simple resonates with us here. For us here, vulnerability could be admitting that while we fight for justice and seek to create change in our communities, sometimes we feel like we're not doing enough. Or maybe we feel like the work we're doing isn't changing anything. Perhaps vulnerability could be opening ourselves up to sharing pieces of our hearts and our lives when we find ourselves in helping situations. Because all too often, those interactions require vulnerability from the vulnerable and never seem to require vulnerability from the privileged. Vulnerability for us could also be admitting that we don't know everything, that we still have so much to learn in a society that is so focused on who is right and who is wrong. These all seem like simple things, small things, but they're things that can change our hearts. Living into these vulnerable situations and opening ourselves up to being vulnerable transforms us to be a people who focus more on others and less on ourselves. Because if we're focused on preserving ourselves or this image that we've created of ourselves over serving the God who called us to be and serve as we are, we, like David, will fall into the trap of selfishness. Lives will be affected. Lives like Bathsheba's, whose agency was taken from her to fulfill David's selfish desires. Lives like Joab, who had to choose between obedience to murder over treason to the king. Lives like Uriah, who, being a man of integrity and selflessness, still wound up dead due to David's selfishness. Lives like the men who died with Uriah, who were mere casualties in an attempt to cover up a privileged man's guilt, sin, and shame. The need to preserve ourselves from vulnerability is strong. It makes us do things we never thought we'd do for the sake of being safe. But the call to serve God authentically, wholeheartedly, and even vulnerably is stronger. So may we be a people that embraces vulnerability. May we be a people that admits when we've done wrong to another. 
May we be a people that prays for a clean heart before someone has to shame us into confession. May we be a people that thinks of how our actions affect those around us and those in the world before we serve ourselves first. May we be a people who answers the call to serve over our own need to preserve. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. God, it is so easy to put ourselves first, to think only of saving our own skin rather than the needs of those around us. So we ask that you would make us aware of ourselves, that you would remind us of your grace and your love for us, and that the beauty of this grace and love would call us to transformation, that we would place the needs of those around us above the need and selfish desire to only serve ourselves. May we be transformed by being vulnerable with one another, honest with one another, authentic with one another, and ultimately honest, authentic, and vulnerable before you. For you know us fully, and you love us fully. Amen. like that, we would go into a time where we share with one another what's going on in our lives, that we would come together week after week and acknowledge that we are people that live in a community with one another, and that there are things in our lives that are wonderful that we want to share and we want people to celebrate with us, and then maybe there are things that are harder to carry and things that we need prayer for and things that we need people to come alongside us and journey with us in. And that's why we do prayers of the people. We do it because it is an acknowledgement every single week that we are a community of individuals that don't stand alone as individuals but stand together. So at this time, if you have any joys or concerns that you would like to share with the congregation, I would invite you to do so so that we can all pray together. <laughs> 